Well, good morning, Heights Church. My name is Trace Jones. I'm the lead student pastor here. And if I've never gotten a chance to get to know you, I just want to say hi. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, the students uh, were whooping right now because uh, they've been asking me for a long time, Trace, when are you going to go up? When are you going to go up? And so I just want to say thank you again to Gary and to Richard and to Matt for this opportunity to share God's word with you this morning, Heights Church. And so I'm super excited to do that because this is my first time sharing with you on a Sunday morning and you are 75% more likely to pay attention to what I have to say. I want every advantage I can get. Uh, you're 75% more likely to, to listen if I show you a picture of my family. So here's a picture of my family. Yeah. Uh, it's changed a little bit since uh, the last time we showed one of these in October of 2021 when I started here. Reese is almost three years old now. This is my wife, Rachel. She and I have been married for over six years and Reese turns three in August. And she is the joy of our life and the life of a lot of the students here, but also our office. She's like our office mascot because she's here almost every day with me. And so you'll see her running through the office and everyone's like, Reese, Reese, Reese. And so she just brings a lot of joy to all of us around here. And also I want to highlight the fact that in case you're, you know, in case you know Colossians 1, like the back of your hand, and you're like, Trace, you just read Colossians 2, 1 through 5, and we skipped five verses at the end of Colossians. What's going on? Here's what's happening. Uh, I was supposed to preach on July 9th, but we're actually doing a mission trip to New York this week as a student ministry, and so we swapped those, uh, those texts. So David Barrett is going to be up here. He's going to preach next week, and he's going to preach on Colossians 1, 24 through 29, and I'm doing 2, 1 through 5 right now. It's out of order. Let's deal with it. <laughs> so as I was preparing for this message and just reading those words of Paul in Colossians 2, 1 through 5 that we read together, I couldn't help but shake this one illustration. I couldn't help but escape, I couldn't escape J.R. Tolkien's seminal work, The Lord of the Rings. And so actually my wife and I got a once in a lifetime opportunity to go with uh, her family and some family friends who actually attend here at the Heights. And we got a chance to go to Switzerland. And my mom was coming up to watch Reese for these couple of weeks while we were, while we were gonna be there. And before we left, she said, hey, Trace, are y'all gonna go see Lauterbrunnen? And I said, I have no idea. I planned all of these trips for our student ministry. I told him, don't ask me to plan anything. Just let me show up there and it'll be great. And she's like, well, you should go there because J.R.R. Tolkien was inspired to write The Lord of the Rings and base Middle Earth off of this part of Switzerland, which you're seeing here. And so this picture is completely unedited. That looks better on a phone than it does up here, but I promise you it looks great on a phone. Uh, and so anyways, you can see down in that valley, that's Lauterbrunnen right there. They call it the Valley of 72 Waterfalls. It is absolutely Gorgeous, And you are, if you stand there, you cannot help but understand why that would inspire Tolkien to write The Lord of the Rings and to, to uh, pattern the topography of Middle Earth after this area. And the reason why that story comes to mind when, uh, when I'm looking at these verses is because it's this beautiful and timeless story about a community's commitment to one another to fulfill a mission. They start off as complete strangers at the beginning of the book. Right? And man can't be trusted to take the one ring and destroy it because they tried that once and it didn't work out. And so Frodo takes the ring, but he has to have this fellowship surround him because he cannot do it on his own. And so it starts off as they go out together, but they get split up 
but even still, they keep fighting towards this common goal and each one of them plays a part in the end and the ring ultimately getting destroyed. But especially consider Sam, who walked with Frodo every step of the way as this protection from the deception of the ring. Sam was the one who took on the the extra burden of being right there with Frodo all the way till the end. And I think this kind of committed community is what Paul is casting a vision for us here in these five verses. So let's break them down one by one. Colossians 2.1, and it'll be up on the screen, it says this, for I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. And I wanna highlight this, right? Because so many of Paul's letters are to people he had established, two areas where he'd established the church or to people that he knew, but he did not know the church at Colossae. And so he's writing to them because Paul's heart was for God's people. And this is the first truth that we see here in this passage we're looking at. As Paul's heart beat for the people of God, even the ones he didn't know, right? We expect him to say, I struggled for the churches that I helped found, but he's literally, he's literally saying here, I am greatly struggling for you and all those who I haven't seen before. Why is Paul telling them this? because he's trying to make an appeal to them before he tells them about the cliff they're about to drive off of at 75 miles an hour. In chapter one, we see Paul, as he starts off this letter, he appeals to their shared belief in Jesus Christ in verses three through 14. And then in verses 15 through 20, he appeals to the centrality of Jesus. And Richard Covington, our executive pastor, did a great sermon on that two weeks ago. And then he makes an appeal to their lives before and after Jesus, which is what Gary was talking about last week. Remember, Gary said that the unreconciled are reconciled to reconcile. So he makes this appeal to them again. Remember your life before Jesus. Remember your life now after Jesus. And then he wraps up chapter one by making this appeal to the ministry that Jesus gave him. And again, that's the passage that David is gonna preach on next Sunday. But in what we're looking at here in these first three verses, he wraps up all of these appeals before he makes the turn to tell them about the danger that they're facing. He he makes this appeal to them by establishing this personal connection. There's power when you tell someone a story, right? There's power when you tell someone, I'm praying for you, I'm for you, my heart is for you, listen to me, I have your best interest at heart. There's power in us saying that, and that's what Paul is saying right here. Why? Because Paul's heart was for God's people. And the truth is that God wants us, you and me, to have that same heart for his people. And Paul shows us how to develop that and why it's so important in verses two and three. Verse two, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I think the second biblical truth that we see in this passage of scripture we're looking at this morning is that your heart should be for God's people. If you are in here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your heart should beat for the people of God, just like Paul's did. 
And Paul is going to give us three specific ways here in verse 2 how we can put that into practice. The first one is this. We are called to encourage. Acts 4, 36 talks about this man named Joseph. And I got to be real, y'all. I grew up in Sunday school. I knew all the, the facts. I won Bible, uh, you know, the, the speed, like finding where you were in the Bible. Bible drill, that's the name of it. <laughs> I, I won all of those things. And, and I knew this fact at one point in time, but I had totally forgotten what we're about to read here. In Acts 4, 36, it says this, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. We never hear him called Joseph again. I forgot that that was his actual name. He embodied this idea of encouragement so much that no one even remembered his real name anymore. They just called him the son of encouragement. This literally is this Hebrew idea that he just embodied encouragement. And so Barnabas was a man who encouraged people everywhere that he went. And if we think about it, if we really think about it, do you feel like the world around us is a place characterized by encouragement? No. That's part of the reason why these three ways that uh, Paul gives us to put these into practice stand out so much in the world we live in today because there's nothing about this world that is encouraging. But Barnabas' story doesn't stop there. He, he goes on, it goes on later on in Acts 11 to tell of how Barnabas was sent by the church in Jerusalem to the church at Antioch to encourage them to remain Faithful. Being encouraging is foreign to the way of the world and always has been. And being encouraging is so powerful that it gave Barnabas the opportunity to be Paul's partner in ministry. Encouragement literally gave Barnabas the platform to be on mission with Paul. We are called to be encouraging. And let me just tell you that this is something that we as a church staff don't just wanna to talk to you about, this is something that we actually wanna put into practice in our own lives. And we always try to go all in, we call it all skate events. We always try to go all in when people are putting on big events like Student Ministries Chi Alpha or uh, Kids Ministries VBS or Three Trees in Wonderland and the list goes on. There's a lot of all skates, there's a lot. But we wanna support each other in our ministry. But not only do we support each other in our ministry, I cannot express to you how much it meant to me over the last two weeks as people called me and texted me, prayed over me, encouraged me in the hallway, told me how excited they were. As a matter of fact, this was a scene from Tuesday at our staff meeting, our weekly staff meeting. As the entire church staff gathered around me to pray over me and lay hands over me, Gary is off screen, but he was the one praying for me. Judd uh, wasn't with his hands on me because he just wanted to take a picture of that moment, which I'm grateful for forever. Why? Because we as a church staff and as a church leadership, we don't simply wanna tell you to be encouraging. We wanna model it. We wanna lead out in that way and champion, and, and champion other people. We are called to encourage as believers and none of them meant more to me than, than when Richard tried to call me as soon as he found out that I was gonna be preaching. As soon as the spreadsheet where we track that stuff is updated, he called me and he told me, tears came to my eyes when I saw your name. That speaks the world to someone when you tell them that. When you tell them that your heart is for them so much in that way, it means the world to people. Your heart should be for God's people and we are called to encourage, but not only are we called to encourage, we are created for unity. We are created 
to have unity with one another. The Greek word here, and again, we're reading out of the Christian Standard Bible translation. It says joined together, but other translations might say, if you're reading another translation, it might say united in love. The Greek word here is sumibazo, and, and it literally means to unite or even more so to knit together. Paul uses it two other places. He uses it in uh, verse 19 of this chapter, and then he uses it again in his letter to the Ephesian church in, verse, uh, in chapter four, verse 16. And both times he uses it in instances to acknowledge that Jesus is the head and he is, and he is knitting together. He's uniting the rest of the body together under his headship. We are created for unity and I love the way that, Paul, uh, that David talks about this in the Psalms. In Psalm 133, he says this, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What is found in unity? Blessing. Blessing is found in unity. And again, it's not material blessing, it's the blessing of having brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking alongside of you in community. It's the, the promise of God's blessing to be in the midst of that, where two or three are gathered in his name. He is there. We are created for this unity, and in that unity, God blesses us with his presence. And the Lord promises that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom is found in unity. Your heart should be for God's people. We are called to encourage. We are created for unity, and we are commanded to love. Jesus' final night with his disciples before he's crucified, he says this in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, by this, your love for one another. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another another. We are commanded to love by Jesus. Why? Because it stands out being a people of encouragement, being a people of unity, being a people that love one another stands out. And again, when I say we're created for unity, we're not created for unity just for unity's sake. We're created for unity for a reason. And Paul is going to tell us a little bit more about that in a second. But I just want you to know, church, and especially if you're in here and you wonder what God wants for you in your life, especially if you're in here and you're not a believer, what God wants for you in this life is that you would have people in your life that would encourage you, people in your life that you could be united with, people in your life that you could love and could be loved by. That's God's heart for you and his design for that is a place he calls the church. Your heart should be for God's people. Do you have a heart for God's people? We need this. 
desperately in our day and age. There are so many people walking around who have been hurt by the church. If we could be this kind of church, we would be a balm for those who had experienced church hurt and have been burned in places before by the church. And if we were to put this into practice right here, right now at the Heights Church, we might even be able to say that we did everything we could to prevent church hurt. We're still humans, we're still gonna mess up, but if we were to put this into practice, could we potentially mitigate that? I think so. You and I, as believers, we are called to have a heart for God's people. And I'll go back to verse two and highlight this next part of it. Right? He, he starts off by saying, I want their hearts to be encouraged and join together in love. We already looked at that. But then he goes to sow that. Right? He, he goes to sow that right here. And it literally, what Paul is doing here is he's connecting unity with understanding. He's connecting unity with understanding. I think the second truth, or the third truth, excuse me, that we see in this passage after Paul's heart was for God's people, your heart should be for God's people, the third truth we see in this passage is that unity results in deeper understanding. And we've all experienced this in relationships, right? When you're in a relationship with one another, you can't help but understanding people and understanding God more clearly, but there's no better example of this than marriage. Like I mentioned, Rachel and I have been married for over six years. And in that time, as Rachel and I have become united, I have gained a deeper understanding of her. I've gained a deeper understanding of God and I've gained a deeper understanding of just how much I suck. <laughs> man, I was really worried there for a second. Like there's like a split second where you didn't laugh and I was like, man. <laughs> See, Rachel has these great qualities that I don't have and most of our fights are about the fact that I don't have these same qualities as her and if I did, I would reflect the nature and character of God better than I do now. But Rachel lives a life that that embodies the empathy of God, the gentleness of God, and the kindness of God. Through her, I see God's heart revealed, and I understand when Hebrews tells us we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us. I understand what David was saying in Psalm 18 when he credits God's gentleness with making David great. And I understand when Scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's in relationship. It's in unity that we begin to get a deeper understanding of who God is. And so Paul is connecting that right here in front of our faces with that phrase, so that they, who is they? They is those of us who are Christians united in love. We are literally, like we said earlier, being knit together as one body. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. And the whole point of us being knit together as one body is we need each other. The I on its own, cannot move without the feet. But where will the feet go except running into the same thing over and over and over again if they're not attached to a body with working eyes? The point that I'm making here is that in unity, we gain deeper understanding of who Jesus is because of our shared experiences and our testimonies and talking about what we've seen God do and the way we've experienced him show up in our lives. Unity requires diversity of experiences and of, of thought. 
It doesn't mean that we all think the same way or have, have had all of the same experiences. No, unity requires diversity of thought coming together so that we can gain a deeper picture and deeper understanding of who Jesus is. Paul even describes this deeper understanding in verse two as wealth or as riches, depending on your translation. And he goes on to talk in verse three about the treasures of wisdom and knowledge found in Jesus. This is a precious thing. One commentary I read pointed out that right here, Paul is emphasizing Christ's sufficiency. All of God's wisdom and knowledge are revealed by him and also his uniqueness in him. And nowhere else are these treasures to be found. But he goes on to say, the riches of complete understanding. And I'm gonna break this down for you because oftentimes what you'll find is in Greek, the words will be translated into a couple of English words, right? But right here, these are actually two distinct words being translated as complete and then as understanding. And so what, there's other translations that say full assurance instead of complete. Paul uses this word again in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 and there it's translated as full conviction. I'm breaking this down to illustrate that while finite humans can never fully understand everything about who God is and the mystery of Jesus, which Paul describes him as in verse two, Outside of that, we will never be able to understand all of who God is, but unity with other Christians will give us deep conviction about the truth of who Jesus is. We may never have complete understanding in the way that we think of that phrase, but what we, what we can have is full conviction that we know who Jesus is and we know that he is who he says he is because I've been unified with other believers who remind me of the fact that Jesus is bigger than anything that I'm facing right now because I know someone who's walked through this and God saw them through the, to the other side. And not to sound too much like Forrest Gump who said, my mama said life's like a box full of chocolates, right? But my mama told me when I was talking to her about this passage of scripture, and I love this insight that she said, she said, biblical community's commitment is to know and guard the truth for one another for protection from deception. And that's the point that Paul is making here because he's, he's gonna make that transition. He's gonna flip this and tell us why he's writing this letter to the Colossian church in the first place here in verses four and five. He says this, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. The fourth truth we see in this passage is deeper understanding prevents being deceived. Paul is concerned that the Colossians might not stay faithful to the gospel, so he's trying to make sure that no one can deceive them. He's lifting up the centrality of Jesus to combat the, what they were, the false teachings that they were being faced with in those days. And he's telling them this so that no one could dissuade them from the truth of the gospel which they believed. But the reality is we all know what it's like to be deceived by things that sound reasonable. Like I can't blame my cousin who grew up in Alabama for being deceived by Taco Bell as actually being Mexican food. If you don't know it, I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley, the southernmost part of the state. And down there, we have real Mexican food. And so the first time that my family, that my mom's family from Mississippi and Alabama came to visit us, they came down and I said, where are we gonna go eat? Uh, and I said, we gotta take them to go have Mexican food, right? And my cousin heard me say that and he turned around and he said, we're going to Taco Bell? <laughs> and we just laughed. Adam, because he didn't know better. 
He'd been deluded into thinking that that was real Mexican food, but we were gonna show him something greater. My mom fooled me because I grew up as a huge Cowboys fan in the 90s. And of course, that was the last time we were good and may ever be good again. And so I grew up a huge fan of Troy Aikman and my mom convinced me that before she married my dad, she actually dated him. And as a nine-year-old who loved Troy Aikman, I'm not gonna try to interrogate the timelines of their lives or anything. I'm just like, that's awesome. (laughs) Or think about how my wife got picked up from gymnastics and went to Bob's Snow Cone and got her pickle snow cone that she loved to get. And they would just take the pickle juice and just dump it in there over the ice. But once it's in there, if you don't actually know or go up and smell it, it's just this yellow snow cone. So Rachel walks into her house after she had her snow cone and she looks at her dad, Bill, who's here this morning and says, Dad, you wanna try my banana snow cone? (laughs) It sounds reasonable because it's yellow. There are all sorts of reasons why we might fall prey to arguments that sound reasonable. So what are some of those things? One thing that might make an argument sound reasonable is just based off of who is telling us. Maybe it's an expert in the field and this is their area of study. And I'm not saying to not trust experts. I'm not saying that Christians need to be conspiracy theorists. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that a lot of times someone will have these credentials and they'll walk up here and they'll say, I'm an expert in this, so you have to believe me. But if you're not careful and you don't understand their frame of reference of understanding the world, you might believe them when honestly, they're not telling you something biblically true. Or or maybe it's the power of a story. You have a friend who has an experience that makes you feel like, man, I don't know if you're walking with Jesus, but they tell you their story about, no, of course, God created me this way. How could he not love me? But here's the power of what happens when you tell someone your personal story. According according to a, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University, as you hear a story unfold, your brainwaves actually start to synchronize with those of the storyteller. In our research, we found that as two people were listening, or as two people were talking, and as one person told the story and the other listened, they found that the greater the listener's comprehension, the more closely the brainwave patterns mirrored those of the storyteller. It's as though I'm trying to make your brain similar to mine in areas that really capture the meaning, the situation, the schema, the context of the world. That is a dangerous thing because then you can sit there and you can hear someone tell you their shared experiences and they might try to point you away from the understanding that we've had of what the Bible means for the last 2,000 years. And because of the way our brains work, you'll hear their personal story and you'll go, well, yeah, you're making a lot of sense. I should trust what you're saying. There's a lot of reasons why things might sound reasonable because of who is telling us or maybe even what our culture tells us who says it's 2023, you can't believe that anymore. We've evolved past that. How could you say that in light of what we know now? Culture will oftentimes even tell us like, no, no, don't believe that, that's not comfortable. It's a lot more comfortable for me to sit here and believe that the Bible doesn't say what it says. There's a lot of reasons why these arguments might sound reasonable. And I just, I want, just wanna show you one example of the danger that comes if we just don't allow ourselves to be united and gain a deeper understanding of scripture from other believers. There's this tweet, I'm not gonna break down, we're not gonna talk about Supreme Court's decisions, but this was tweeted out in light of that. And the person who tweeted this out 
tweeted it out to highlight what she was claiming was the hypocrisy of conservative Christians. Because how can you be a believer of Jesus when Jesus is saying on the surface, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And you can just sit there and go, well, man, she got a point. Jesus said that himself. But was Jesus talking about monetary debts in that situation? No, Luke also says, also tells this story and he talks about the sins, right? This is actually about spiritual debt that we have. But all it takes is someone to copy and paste a verse, slap it on social media, and people will believe, there's another example, Christians are such hypocrites. Jesus is proclaiming a debt-free world. That's why we have to be in unity with one another. Yes, we may wind up, as we pursue Jesus, having different political ideologies, and guess what, that's okay. We may not apply scripture in the exact same way when it comes to the way that we vote, but we need to be united under the banner of truth of Jesus. And we need to point people back to scripture as the final authority in our lives and the way that we perceive the world. The world cannot tell us how we should perceive scripture. And that is the dangerous thing about the world we live in today. As a matter of fact, a couple weeks ago, David Barrett and I recorded a podcast with Gary, and I think it's gonna be published soon on our, on our YouTube channel, but we talked about the fact of what Gary has seen in his 40 years of preaching. And one of the things that he talked about is this idea that people no longer go to the Bible first for authority. They go to social media, they go to their friend. The danger is that a lot of times we will go where we feel like we belong and we'll believe whatever they believe and we'll become whatever they're becoming because we feel like we belong there. And we cannot allow that and we cannot withstand that. We as Christians should be people who hold each other up and live in unity together so that we can dis- so that we can defeat and perfect, oh man, protect each other from deception. This kind of church is the hope of the world. The world is desperately in need of a church who would uphold biblical truth, but doing it in a way they're encouraged doing it in a way where they're unified, doing it in a way where they're loving one another. Can you imagine what kind of an impact that kind of church could have on the world around us today when everything in the world is so discouraging and there is no unity anymore and there is no love to be had unless you believe exactly the same thing as other people? What if we could put forward another way? What if as Christians, we could show that it does not matter if I believe everything that you believe, but we are, we are committed to one another because we believe in the name of Jesus and who the Bible says Jesus is. That kind of church could be the hope of the world. And so the question is, how do we put this into practice? How do I, if I'm sitting here today and I'm a Christian and I say, I don't know that I have a heart for God's people, not like this, not like what Paul is describing here. If that's you and you're sitting in here today, I just want to encourage you with four, four things. Maybe you're doing all four of these things and I would say right on, you probably have a heart for God's people. But if you're in here this morning and you have been coming to church for a while and you don't have a life group, you don't have people that you're living in community with, then you need to jump into community. You need to be part of a life group. 
or maybe you're part of a life group, but you're not actually putting your spiritual gifts into practice and serving people, then serve in a ministry and be co-laborers with other people. That will unite you with God's people. Or maybe you need to be discipled. Or maybe you're already being discipled and serving and being in a life group, then maybe you need to disciple someone else because I guarantee you that will give you a heart for God's people. But none of this matters if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. If you're in here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then everything that I've posited that we might put into practice here as a church doesn't apply to you. It applies to people who have a relationship with Jesus. And if you're sitting here going, no, Trace, I've got friends. Let me just tell you right now, you don't have committed community. You have circumstantial companions. And maybe you're sitting here and you're going, no, I know, I understand the world. Let me just tell you right now, you don't have true understanding. You have wisdom in your own eyes. And if you're sitting here and you're going, man, none of this is real. Let me just tell you right now that you don't have eternal security. You are just being tossed to and fro by the waves of culture and what we believe this week, which we will undoubtedly change what we believe next week. So if you're in here and you're like, man, I want to be a part of a church like that, I want to be encouraged. If you're telling me that God's heart is that I would be encouraged and have unity and have love, I'm not experiencing that right now. I wanna experience that. Then all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will be saved. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 10, nine. And so if you're sitting in here and you feel this tug on your heart, that is the Holy Spirit calling you and beckoning you unto him. And as we worship in just a moment, I wanna invite you to come to the next step room where someone would love to talk to you more about what it means that Jesus came and lived a sinless, perfect life on this earth so that he could be offered up as a sacrifice because you and I could not pay that debt on our own. Jesus came and was crucified, died, buried, and resurrected so that you and I might have life and get to experience life the way God designed it, which is what Paul is telling us about right here. So I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna continue on in worship before we dismiss for this morning, but do not miss this opportunity to either decide to take a next step as a Christian, or if you're in here and you wanna talk with someone or pray with someone, we would love to talk with you and pray with you in the back. God, we love you, we thank you for today, and we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the fact that you loved us so much that you didn't want us to go through life alone, discouraged, not ever experiencing love. You sent your son on the cross to die that we might find that with other believers. So Jesus, we thank you for that and we celebrate you for that. It's in your name we pray, amen.